I think overall, what it does and what it's there for is quite exceptional. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. We have another Canada Pension Plan episode today, and there's a particular reason why you'll see this in a moment. Before we get to that, I'll just go over the CE credits. Today's episode will be good for credits in British Columbia, Alberta for life insurance only, Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Ontario, which should work as credits in all those provinces. It'll be good for an IROC professional development credit, an IAS credit for the advocates members out there, as well as a financial planning credit from FP Canada. And uh, before too long, I guess we'll be able to talk about MFDA credits in there too. uh, I'll have to find an opportunity to delve into that in one of these episodes at some point. The guest today is David Field. David is a financial planner who I, it turns out, have a lot of sort of intersecting paths with. It's kind of funny because he specifically mentions by name Alexandra McQueen, who was the guest on the last episode. I never really thought about that happening, but I know they know each other and have done work together. The reason I had David on here was because of the CPP calculator. I've already promoted this thing on all my social media feeds. I really like it. It addresses a gap in Canada Pension Plan planning. And this is going to be more true for somebody who's closer to retirement. David talks about this in the interview where we really get a problem when we're trying to figure out if let's say a 52 year old should move to an all dividend strategy or should keep paying themselves a salary and contribute to CPP, assuming that person is self-employed or owns their own corporation, really, and has the opportunity to make that decision. And I shouldn't say that for self-employed. If you're self-employed, of course, you have to pay CPP on your self-employment earnings. But if you own your own corporation, you have often the choice as to whether to pay yourself dividends or salary. And uh, using that choice properly is going to give you an option. I don't know if you can hear the birds out there. The birds outside my window are just going nuts today. Yeah, so that decision becomes quite material. Now, there's a couple other things that I want to focus on here. David happens to have a technology background, and I've heard a fair bit of this lately. If you happen to listen to Jason Pereira's FinTech Impact podcast, he often has uh, discussions on there with people who started technology companies. And some of them come from an advisory background and some of them don't. And Jason himself actually is a tech entrepreneur as whatever that is his fourth or fifth job. But 
I always find this interesting. I find it interesting people who sort of, and it's the classic thing, identify a problem and say, well, I'm going to come up with a way to fix that problem. So I really like the tool. I would encourage you. There's no cost to it. It's perfectly free. And I know David's in the process of working up some advisor supports here as well. Go over to cppcalculator.com, the links in the show notes, and have a look at how that works. You just have to go on to the Service Canada website, which every advisor should be doing. You should have an account set up for yourself at the Service Canada website. If you already have a MyCRA account, it's the same login, and you can go in there and access your CPP statements. Uh, you can do the same thing for your clients. You can get your clients to go set up a My Service Canada account. I think for any client who's sort of age 50 plus where retirement planning is starting to become quite material, it's worth it to get that thing set up to get yourself and your clients sorted out with a My Service Canada account. Really easy to do. Now you can access it just by using your bank account login information. Once it's set up, it's good and there's lots of really useful information in there. As David points out in the interview, however, the estimate you're going to get as to your CPP earnings is not going to be accurate. And it's something I show in class a little bit is how to determine just how inaccurate your CPP estimate is. But until now, I have not seen a tool that readily allowed you to create a more accurate solution for that. So I really would urge you to have a look at that. The color for today's episode is green. The color for today's episode is green. Okay, thanks very much for joining us today, David. Uh, joining me today is David Field. David is with Papyrus Planning and also cppcalculator.com, David. That's the website, right? That's correct. Thanks. Yeah, that's a big win on that URL. I like it. So can you talk a little bit about how you got into financial planning, David? Yeah, I mean, I, I took a bit of a detour. I was, was working in publishing out of university for about 10 years, and then I uh, had an opportunity to work with a, a multi-advisor group based in Oakville that's affiliated with Sun Life. And uh, so I, become, I became a Sun Life advisor and was able to be mentored by them. Uh, and I had a great opportunity to, well, right from the beginning, they, Sun Life was changing over to NaviPlan and uh, there was a real need to learn that software. So I kind of filled that need and we had an in-house financial planner by the name of Cam Cherry and he became kind of a mentor to me on the financial planning side. And so I, I didn't go into financial planning, but I got attracted to it right away and then focused uh, my career on that. Perfect. So at Sun, you would have been life and mutual funds licensed. And did you obtain CFP certification there too? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I started off with my life license uh, and then I uh, got my mutual fund license. And then uh, a number of years later, I was able to get my CFP. Yeah. Perfect. A pretty, pretty common career route. Although, I, I mean, not everybody at Sun certainly pursues CFP certification, but common enough. I've had quite a few students go that route. Now, today then, what's your business model look like, David? Uh, well, in 2017, I left Sun Life and um, started Papyrus Planning. 
Uh, it's an advice only financial planning firm. It's mostly just me, but I do have a couple uh, people that help me out as well. And basically my main focus is retirement income planning. And so that's, that's where I concentrate most of my time and most of my clients fit that need. So would your clients be people who have pension questions or like business owners selling their businesses, or is there any kind of particular, you know, retirement income planning client you prefer to work with? No, I mean, generally just that they're at the stage that they want to turn their assets into an income generally, you know, from stopping working or, I mean, even, even if they still want to continue working, but they have to start taking some of their income from different assets that'll, you know, so whether they're a business owner or not, we can, you know, is whatever their source of income or their assets are that we can start pulling from in retirement. Perfect. And I assume then you're not investment funds licensed at all. No MFD, no IROC. No, I, 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 I have no uh, licenses anymore. I, I, when I left Sun Life, I gave up my, uh, MFDA license, obviously, because it's associated with them. Uh, I still have my life license, not for any necessarily particular reason, but in my planning, I, I tend to look a lot at alternative solutions to just investing. And so then, it, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities in the insurance world for, you know, alternatives that may or may not be appropriate for some. Yeah, that makes sense in Canada anyways, absent a, a good model on the fee-only side or the advice-only side, there's not really a great model for life insurance today, is there? You, you really have to carry that life license or I, I don't know what what else you do. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not that I sell any insurance products. It's just, you know, it's just kind of a way to, I don't know, just, just ensure that I have, you know, that I have some of the requirements to provide advice on that in those areas, right? And then what about assets? So where do your clients put assets when you're uh, giving them advice about those assets? Are they DIYing it? Are they using like a bank product? What happens there? Yeah, I find it a mix. I mean, uh, very much like do-it-yourself investors, you know, they seem to have managed well until they get to the point of trying to figure out where they take money from and how they manage that decumulation. And so it starts getting a little more complex for them. And so then we, it's often a time that they reach out is, you know, at that time where they are thinking about taking money out. And then others have been with other advisors or with the banks and not necessarily receiving the advice or people are a suspect of that they're getting advice that's tailored for them. So they reach out and, and I mean, to me, it, you know, it doesn't really matter whether they're working with somebody or not then I just work with that and, and try and work with them. And it's not that all advisors like working in that arrangement, but I'm not, I'm not adverse to it. If, you know, if they're treating the client well and they're, they're providing the right service and we can work in collaboration, then it works well for everybody. That's almost like a paraplanner type of rule then David, isn't it? You're kind of, you're doing the, the planning heavy lifting while the advisor does the relationship side or that type of thing. A little bit. I mean, it's a little bit like that, except that it's the client that set out that engagement. It's not, you know, it wasn't the advisor reaching out to me to set up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I get the distinction, but I think it's curious. Like, I, I would not have thought about working with clients who are still working with their previous advisor or whatever. I, I would have assumed that it would be all very sort of black and white or whatever. 
Yeah, well, I mean, and, and some people have, you know, they're, they're, some advisors are very good at the investment side of things and maybe not so much on the planning. And so rather than give up someone that they feel they work well with and that is well suited for them, they just kind of add me to the mix rather than, you know, seek out somebody completely new. Perfect. So uh, you talked before about your time at Sun, David, and you talked, uh, Cam, you said was your, your sort of planning mentor there? Yes. Yeah. And do you think that it would have been viable to roll right into a sort of advice only practice without having spent that time as part of a team and with a, with a mentor or is there a way that can work today? Um, well, I mean, I, I think there's possibilities. I mean, I, I am a member of advice only planners group. And so it's a number of us across Canada that really provide support for each other. So not only in a referral capacity, like can we work together on a project because this is outside my scope, but also just, you know, seeking information and learning and that sort of stuff. So it's a good group. We really support each other. So, I mean, that's a possibility for people who haven't had that ability to be mentored. But I do think, you know, working in that multi-advisor group and working with CAM and really providing an opportunity for learning outside of my comfort zone, right? So they would do a lot of business planning, you know, advanced business planning techniques, that sort of stuff. And, you know, and members from head office of Sun Life would come in, like experts would come into our office to teach us or to work on a case. And we had access to that. Whereas even as just a regular Sun Life advisor, not in a multi-advisor group, you don't have access to that learning and knowledge. So, I mean, it definitely allows you to grow a lot faster. And, and I don't know if I would have had the confidence to become a f- advice only planner, especially since there's so few of us without having had that background going into it. Do you find that just the Canadian marketplace, I mean, advice only or, or fee only models are not that commonplace. Do you find that just there's been a, like a low uptake on it? Do you find yourself fighting a trend that way where people say, why would I write you a check type of thing? Um, yeah, I thought I would have, I thought there would be more of that, but people who seem to be attracted to our services are looking for that already. So I, I really don't encounter that many people who, cause they're probably not seeking me out. If they're happy with the other arrangement where, you know, whatever planning is being done included in their fees and that sort of arrangement, then, then there, we're not really meeting up too much. So I, I don't really get that. I'm sure there is that resistance in, in out there. I, I just don't encounter those individuals that often. Now, I don't want to treat the financial plan like a product here. That's not the intent of this question. I know that financial planning is a process, right? Sure. But what does the what does the actual deliverable, what does the thing you give to the client look like and how did you arrive at that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's mostly just a written document you know, kind of outlining the steps and recommendations in words so that after the meeting or after the presentation, they have that as a reference. And then there would also work with, you know, an investment policy statement and a withdrawal policy statement as part of that as well, especially if they're working with somebody else. And then, you know, then the supporting document, you know, the numbers and, and that sort of stuff. So I, 
you know, the, the plan will have all of that, you know, the, the printed plan or the PDF of the printed plan will have all that. But, you know, I really, you know, a lot of time goes into writing that first bit. It's not point form. It's like I try to be very explanatory and reasoning for it all so that they have that to refer back to kind of be the cornerstone of their retirement. Perfect. I assume if you're using a withdrawal policy statement, that's a that's straight out of Michael Kitsis, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that, it's, that's where that idea came from. For yeah, sure. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that approach, David. And I, I think that's, I mean, that's something I'd love to see integrated into our financial planning process more broadly. So that's a great step. Thanks for, thanks for doing that. Now, so of course, the thing that, that I reached out to you about specifically was you've recently released the CPP calculator, cppcalculator.com. And I'm hoping to delve into that a little bit. I know you partnered up with Doug Runchy, and Doug is well-known. He's done a bunch of work. I know on retirehappy.ca, for example. What was the impetus for doing this? How it came about was, I guess, a long version of it. Is So I read Fred Vitesse's Retirement Income for Life book, and the chapter on the CPP and you know the fact that that's most people's only pension and you know, it really caused me to rethink and reanalyze what advice I gave around the CPP. And so then you start learning more and more about it. And uh, so then I, I came up with an idea as, you know, it's kind of like, so it's at cppquiz.ca. And it's kind of a, it's an online quiz people can take to kind of guide them towards, you know, should they be looking at delaying it perhaps? Should they just take it early? And that's still up. But as I was creating that as a tool, it became quite evident that it's really hard to even go through the CPP quiz that I created without really knowing your numbers and, and, and what your specific calculations for the CPP turn out to be at various ages. And uh, so that, that led me to realize that, you know, I, I was researching how do you do it? How do you come up with it? Obviously, that's, uh, you know, I knew Doug had provided services and I would hire Doug to do calculations for some of my clients' plans. So then that's where the idea of the calculator came about. I figured there had to be some way to get this information. And did you do the actual coding work on it or did you outsource that? How'd you go about that, David? Yeah, so I I did the coding behind it. My first business was at 16. I did like web pages for small businesses and some computer help, that sort of thing. And so I always had a little bit of that background and, and uh, I, I had done, you know, just some mild programming before, nothing kind of more hobby-ish. And um, so when I decided to do this, it was kind of like a trial by error sort of thing. So let's just, how can I do this one step of a calculator? Can I figure out how to do that? And then, you know, you research it, you try it out, you, okay, figure that out. So how can I, you know, do the next thing? How can I? And so it just kind of built on top of each other. And then eventually at one point I figured I'd actually be able to maybe legitimately make this work. So then I, at that point, I reached out to Doug because we had worked together before and just wanted to get his take on it and see if it would be something he'd be interested to partner in on. And I had gotten close enough that I could brand it as a estimate. You know, it wouldn't be Doug Runchy quality, 
it would be pretty close, right? And, and I mean, most of that was just based on his teachings on the web where I had gotten it close, right? Yeah. So I brought it to Doug and, and asked his opinion on it. And he seemed impressed and was very interested. And we started working together. And then I was able to, it took many, many months to get it to the point to present it to Doug. And then it took many months just tweaking it to be Doug Runchy accurate. Yeah. And it really fills a need in that the information you get from Service Canada, as and this, I know Fred Vitesse talked about him before. He's written about this, and I've seen Doug write about this. That that statement you get from Service Canada is essentially wrong the day after it's printed and becomes increasingly wrong as you get closer to retirement. Is that fair, David? If you're looking to retire at 65 and you're a few months from 65 and you got a statement, it's pretty close. I mean, it's possible it might be off a dollar or two, but it's going to be really close what they send you. But it's when you request a statement and you're a few years out. And really the, the, the biggest thing is it's that period from 60 to 65 that you don't really understand the impact of if you stop working, then they're just zero contribution. And CPP doesn't care about when you stopped work. They care about when you start your benefit. Right. So it's basically just going to add more zeros to the calculation until you start your benefit. And then it depends if your lowest 17% already was used when you were going to school when you were young or whatever the case right. is, right? So Yeah. And, and, and one thing, too, that I, I mean, we don't collect data, but I've been able to do the testing and people, you know, inquire for support and help and that sort of stuff. But when you, when you see people's contributions, in general, people who've maxed out their contributions, people who are likely to have the highest CPP benefit, they likely went on to some form of post-secondary school, right? College or university, that sort of thing, right? So they're age 18, they're age 19, they're age 20, they're age 21, could be, could be zero or close to zero. And then, then they're starting out in their first jobs and those first few years are quite low, right? And then they hit the maximum CPP and they maybe do that for the rest of their life. But you know, now you're getting close to 60 and you wanna stop at 60, but you wanna not start your benefit till 65. Well, you may already have eight low years or seven low years, and now you're just adding more. And so you're actually reducing your benefit. Yeah. So I went through the exercise, you know, this, I did this just this past weekend, used the calculator and I was really impressed. Essentially you go to the service Canada, you grab the HTML of your contributions. I go through this in my classes. I try to show students why it's important and it's exactly the pattern you just described, right? Where, why it's important. You can't just look at the estimate. You have to see the interim years. Right. And the calculator really does a nice job of just, you know, you see all your years laid out against the YMPE for those years. It's uh, the functionality is really good. I honestly, I had thought years and years ago, David, I had this idea to do something like this with an OCR, right? With a optical character recognition, but way beyond my capabilities. And uh, so I'm, I'm really happy that somebody else did a better job than I would have ever done. So I did like it. It's really good. And I can see, so what have you heard from advisors who are using it to this point? Do you have advisors who are connecting with their clients to use it? Uh, I do. So some advisors are using it. I mean, the, the state of the calculator right now is just kind of our way of putting it out to the world and seeing if there was really interest, right? We thought there would be, but you, you never know, right? I, I've tried many other things too that have not had 
that level of interest, right? So, so now, you know, it's been clear there's been interest from both individual Canadians and advisors. And so, you know, we're working to like expand that in next stages, right? Yeah, and, and advisors, I think, have found it really useful. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's some improvements to be made. It's usually advisors that give me feedback as to, well, why don't we include inflation in the numbers and the comparison and that sort of thing? You know, it's something that Doug and I debated a lot about, but we just felt that it was easier for people to understand current day numbers. And also current day numbers is all that we can kind of deal with. We don't know what the YMPE is going to be, you know, next year yet. You know, so you just kind of have to deal with what you have and, and trying to make it as simple and most you know, uh, user-friendly. But I think as we progress it out, we'll, we'll try and add some options like that. So people want to have that sort of information because that's how they process it. Yeah, I could see the utility of, of giving like a, you know, do you want this to be an inflated number or do you want it in $2020? Or I can see the utility of that. I, as long as it's clear though, I don't know that, because I do find this, once you add inflation in, people get confused around what that number really means. Right. And I think too, there's like a, and I mean, a calculator is very analytical and that sort of thing, but you know, with the CPP, you can get very analytical about the decision, but then there's a reality. So for instance, you know, some people will be like, okay, well, if I take it at 60 and I take those extra five years and I put that in savings and then I can invest it and then that grows, then that's the real comparison. Right. Right. But the honest, Thing is, I've never seen, I've never had a client that takes it early and doesn't spend it. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point. And I, I always say, if, if you need the money, right, then it take it, right? If you're confident in shortened life expectancy, take it. But I'm not a huge fan of that investment concept either, David. I think that whatever, you could treat it as an overall pool of dollars, but it does get, I think, a little bit unrealistic at that point. Right. Yeah. Now, I'm assuming like you've thought about Canada Pension Plan an awful lot. I suspect that you've thought about Canada Pension Plan more than probably pretty much any other financial planner now. Just building the tool, you'd be thinking this all the time, right? Yeah, it's been on my mind a lot, yeah. So what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? You know, you said before it's that important pillar for almost every Canadian. Should we be happy with it or should we be asking for something different? I think overall, what it does and what it's there for is quite exceptional. I'm not saying it's the best in the world, but I received a call from a journalist a few months ago wondering whether people should be able to access the CPP, you know, because in Australia, they were allowing them to access the superannuation, I can never say it, um, but, the, but they're totally different programs, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think you know, having a guaranteed pension for people as a portion of their portfolio is a big asset, right? Because for some people, they, they either can save or can't save, you know, so I think it's a good base for a lot of people. You know, I mean, I think the complexities of it and how difficult it is to understand is a challenge for it. And, and I, you know, I think simplicity is better and, Obviously, I'm able to 
maybe benefit by creating this calculator because of those complexities. But in general, I think it would be better if there's ways to, to simplify it. But to be honest, it doesn't with the enhancements and all that. I mean, it's not to say that they're not making improving it, um, but it's getting harder and harder to understand. And then also it's a pension, but it's also a disability benefit. And it's also a bit of insurance if you die. And so it it's more than just a pension as well, right? So, which is good and bad, adds to the confusion. It's, it's also harder to judge the true value of it because some people will take the, the disability benefit. Some people, many people won't. And so it's hard to, you know, judge it because it's it's got so many components. Yeah, I mean, it's very much, the disability benefit is very much a benefit of last resort. And like the survivor's benefit to me seems like the, unfortunately, the more likely benefit that you're actually going to see make a, a material difference for somebody, right? Right. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's how I've always perceived it. Now, going through the information on your website, I was interested to see, and I've, I've known this, but I never knew how it worked. So you, you offline beforehand gave me a nice explanation, but you make the, the good point on your website that when you figure out the, the 17% dropout period or low, in, low earnings period, I think it's called, whatever the, the proper name is, uh, that it's actually calculated a little bit differently from how um, people might think. Can, can you just go over that, David? Uh, yeah, so the, a person's statement is done yearly. And so it's assumed that it's 17% of those years uh, that are dropped out, but it, those years are actually converted into monthly contributions. So your actual contributions is how long from age 18 until your start date, how many months in that time period you've contributed. And so it's 17% of those contributory months that are dropped out. And then the same thing works for the child rearing dropout as well, you're taking away months, right? So you're looking at when someone's eligible to have dropped those out based on when they were looking after their kids, and it's, it's on um, it's broken down by months as well. Yeah, that's, so in my case, like I was born in November, I turned 18 in November, I was working that year. I'm not losing a whole year for that low income year, I'm losing two months out of the calculation. Right, and if you use a CPP calculator, not to plug the calculator, but the, you know, it, it accounts for that. So it'll, so when you meant manually enter your, your data, if that's the way you choose to do it, it won't allow you to enter higher than the YMP for that year, but it will restrict based on your, that birth date, how, how, how high that YMP can be for that contribution year, because it could only be two months at age 18 in year 18. So just going back to the inflation thing. So like I'm 45, whatever. And so I've got a long, I've got 20 more years until age 65. And I noticed that you said that the YMP number is not inflated. I'm, I'm curious about this because that number, like the YMP did change over the years and it seemed to change in like little increments. Do you know what I'm talking about there, David? Uh, you mean in the calculator itself? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the YMP for every year is, you know, since 1966 is in the calculator. Yeah. And then it's adjusted as time goes on. So, for instance, for, you know, we know the YMP for 2020, but we don't know for 2021. Yeah. Soon, soon I'll probably be able to manually calculate that. But 
but assuming we don't know 2021 and beyond, well, we just have the YMP be the same as the year 2020. Okay. Going into the future. And so the reason for that is in the legislation for the Canada Pension Plan, it stipulates in there that the YMP will never decrease. So once it's established a new YMP, that will always be the lowest it will ever go moving forward. And so then we use that number moving forward. And then we use that in the calculation of the AYMP because as you, the five years go out, it will adjust that. But, uh, but that YMP is just that most recent number into the future. And then by 2025, we'll be at 114% of YMPE, which is AYMPE, right? The right, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, yeah. So then that's in a different, yeah. So essentially it goes through the calculation and then it goes through the calculation uh, of the enhancements. Perfect. Got it. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the enhancement goes, which we're currently sort of a third of the way through the changes related to the enhancement, give or take, right? What's your perception of the enhancement? Uh, well, it's just, I mean, it, it, it's over a 40 year period. And it's, it's, and the first part's being gradually introduced till 2025. So, um, you know, someone who's age 18 right now is gonna really benefit for that. And, and calculating the enhancements are really going to matter. For someone retiring in the next five years, I mean, obviously we want the calculator to be as accurate as possible. And so we include those but that's not going to make a large difference to, you know, someone retiring in the next five years. I agree. It's not going to change their benefit very much. If I'm self-employed by 2025, my contributions are significantly more than they are now. Right. Yes. Yeah. So do you think that that's a reason for self-employed people to consider opting out of it? Or do you think that self-employed people, like you kind of made this comment earlier where you said, you know, when I see somebody take it at 60, they always just spend it anyways. And so if I got a self-employed person who's 55 and they decide not to participate anymore, they go to an all dividend compensation scheme. Do you see the same kind of thing? Like, are they just going to take that savings and buy a nicer car or are they going to take that, invest it, whatever the case is, what's your sort of take there? Uh, Well, I mean, it it very much depends on what they decide to do and what they follow through and, and do. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I, I understand, that someone may not want to pay double, essentially, the you know the, the employer and the employee part of the contributions, especially as the enhancements get higher, and I mean, and that that will require some analysis whether that's worthwhile for them as well. But th- there's also other considerations to factor in for someone who's self-employed, right? So um, you know, if if it's a really s- small business, then they likely have no access to other pensions, right? Uh, Or like defined benefit pensions. So this is it for them, right? So they may want want to do that. It also would depend on how much much cash and how much assets they have, right? It's it's probably advantageous if, you know, you've already maxed out whatever RSP room you have, you know, you're trying to find where to put your money, right? If you're in that kind of advantageous circumstance, you know, I, I think it's really important to not look at the CPP as a tax. You know, it, it is a pension that you're contributing to, right? So if, if you had an employer, an employer pension, would you want to contribute to that, right? And I mean, you, you, you'll see uh, 
you know, business owners, they'll, or, you know, um, looking at alternative pension things to create or, you know, above and beyond their own RSPs and that sort of stuff. And so, it, you know, seeing those are quite expensive to set up and elaborate and maybe you can just contribute to the CPP. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, it's, there's no clear cut answer. Yeah. You really have to look at what are your circumstances? What's the cash flow of your business? You know, all that sort of stuff. But if you're, if it's money that, you know, if that contribution reduces your income for your business and you can, you know, it may not be that disadvantageous, right? At first, I know the idea of double taxing yourself, but you really can't look at it as a, as a tax. So, but I mean, it's kind of a non-avoidable answer. I mean, it really depends on so many factors as to what's, what's right for them. But, you know, I, I think it, it goes to show you can't just give a blanket answer and, and every business owner is going to have a totally different outlook on it and circumstance on it and, and that sort of thing. Right. I mean, if there was a, a black and white answer to it, then this tool wouldn't be needed. Right. That's kind of the. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Now just switching gears a little bit here. So you and I actually first met not from the CPB calculator, but from the Financial Planning Association of Canada, from FPAC, correct? Yeah. Uh, via their pro bono committee. Can you talk a little bit about what you see in terms of the pro bono side for financial planners, or or even if you've done any pro bono work there? Can you chat about that? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's been clear is you know there's many financial planners across the country and ones that I've been able to work with and meet in this committee that, you know, just genuinely want to help. And there's a, just a realization that it's not, we have to be connected with people who need that help. And for some people, you know, depending on uh, what the need is, whether it's someone retiring with an extreme, you know, with very low income and low assets, you know, there's a lot of different planning strategies that, uh, exist that could help people at all different stages. So whether you have a lot of money or you have very little, there's a lot that can be done to help people and make a dramatic Im impact in their retirement. And so part of our challenge is trying to, is trying to get people to know that there's still a lot of advantage to doing planning because there's kind of an assumption that if you don't have assets, you don't have very complex needs and therefore you don't need planning. You know, a, a great example, even outside of retirement is, you know, the uptake on RESPs for low-income Canadians, the uptake on getting the free, free grant money that requires no contribution, they just have to set up an account with an institution. I mean, the uptake is appalling. I forget, it was in the budget a couple of years ago. I, mean, I don't know if it was 30 some percent or I have to check figures. And nobody but. does it. Nobody does it, David. That's, and I, I, I do a lot of work with a low income uh, group and, and until they've been specifically educated about that, nobody, nobody has done it. Right. And I mean, it's, it's a matter of, they don't know it. The government doesn't have it be automatic. The banks don't, uh, not just to blame the banks, but any institution offering a RESP where you contribute, it's not in their interest because it's a lot of work to set it up. There's a lot of compliance. And, you know, if someone qualifies for that, you know, it, it'll be a lower balance account, right? So it could make a, a good difference to somebody's education, but it wouldn't make a big difference to the 
advisors having to do all the legwork for it. It's, it's fair. I mean, institutionally, if I'm a bank and I lock somebody in with an RESP for their one-year-old, I know I have that client for 20 years, right? But I get it. The advisor's work is really, I don't envy folks setting up RESPs. I know it's a ton of work. Yeah. And, and it's a lot of work then when you take the money out too, right? Hopefully when I'm setting up the account, I'm not thinking too much about the paperwork to make the withdrawals. That's generally so far apart that I... It's true. Especially if I'm in a bank environment, I know somebody else is going to be doing that work, right? Right. At least I hope. Now, I really love here that you you had saw a problem. You said, look, there's not a good CPP calculator available. The, the Service Canada information tends to be a little bit lacking. You know, people need help from somebody like Doug, but realistically, not everybody can can reach out or not everybody's going to reach out to Doug, right? So you, you kind of step up and address this issue. And I, th- I think that if I spoke to advisors across the country, planners across the country, there'd be lots of people who have like an ax to grind like this or a, a bugbear. And they think oh, it'd be nice if there was a solution, right? Do you have any comments or advice for that person who's thinking, I wish there was a solution. I wish there was a fix for this. Uh, well, some of the comments from the CPP calculator, you know, was that I can't believe the government didn't provide this as, a, as part of their service, right? There's lots of things that just kind of fall through the gaps, right? I'm sure it's come up on their end, right? And the, the calculation is complicated. So I'm, I'm sure the Canadian government could do it much easier than I could have. But it's, you know, it's probably a lower priority, right? And so I, th- I think that's in any industry, but particularly ours, there's, there's a lot of little cracks. And I know certain individuals give a lot of thought to decumulation, right? But there could be like a philosopher or somebody who just like spends all their time thinking about how to take money out. I mean, that's a huge gap, right? And a lot more need for research there. And somebody's got to fill those, those gaps. And, and I guess... I guess that's how it's always been done. It's just on some issues that it's already been done a lot, right? Like it's already been looked into a lot, right? So like decumulation, accumulation. Well, a lot of people thought a lot about accumulation. A lot of people created solutions for accumulation, right? And filled those holes over years, right? So now when you look at it, it doesn't look like there's, you know, that many holes, but there there are still new innovations that are coming on that side of it, right? So I guess it seems like a patchwork, but everybody's kind of contributing and doing their part. And if someone has a certain idea or a niche or something, like my advice to people would be just to test it, you know, and that's kind of what we did with the CPP calculator. I had, I put a lot of effort into a lot of ideas I thought were fantastic, even just in the financial planning space. Right. And then there's no uptake or it's hard to explain or, you know, the advantage of it. And so you, you just don't get the attraction. And so, you know, hours and hours and hours went into those ideas and nothing came of it, right? And so, you know, the, the CPP calculator is not where I envision it to be, but it's out there, it's functional, it serves a purpose, and we've gotten very good feedback. So then that feedback and that is enough for us to then continue trying to improve on, on it. It's a good point about the feedback, right? So, you know, if you're out there, if you're using the calculator and, and there's something you'd like to see, I guess you want to hear about that, David, right? Yeah. And I mean, and, you know, the thousands of people who've used the calculator and the hundreds that have provided feedback and both negative and positive feedback, it's all very helpful. Right. And, you know, when you're small and it's just Doug and I doing this, 
they're your product testers. They're your, you know, and people, people are really genuinely interested to help. And, and, you know, I guess we help them trying to make their decisions and they want to help us as well. So, and improve it. So that's perfect. Do you have any last minute comments, David? And I'm thinking you sort of started this technology venture at the same time as you're running your financial planning practice. Any last minute comments or advice for anybody who's out there who who might be uh, headed down that path? Yeah, I mean, I've always been very conscious of the fact that, you know, I like the technology side and I like, you know, trying to, you know, contribute with certain innovations there. But I've all been very focused on the fact that, you know, financial planning is very, well, it's like many careers, I guess, but financial planning, you only learn by doing more plans. And so if you want to become a better planner, you just have to do more plans. And so, you know, I could work on the CPP calculator 100% of my time and, you know, and hopefully we can get it to a point where I'm, that would generate an a proper living from that, but I would lose my knowledge and my insight by not working with individuals and couples and doing this kind of real world planning and problem solving. And so, you know, that's, that's the thing with the financial planning. Right. And so same, you know, it's the same thing. Like if you're writing books or, or anything like that, like I have a book called boomers retire, uh, that I co-edited with, uh, Alexandra McQueen. So that's coming out in December from Thomson Reuters. And so, I mean, that's a great experience and that's a great thing to do. And, you know, working with Alexandra, I learned so much from as well. But both of us, Alexandra and I, have to learn, continue to learn and expand ourselves by doing plans for people. You know, even if you can make a living off writing, you still have to do the planning. And I mean, I love the planning, so I don't ever want to give it up, but I think in financial planning, there's, and especially when you're advice only, you don't, I don't have the restrictions of my licenses that I can't go certain there's places or there's certain conflicts. So it allows me more freedom, but I, I'm still always have to, I'm always, you know, the foundation is the planning and doing planning for people. Yeah. Perfect. That's great, David. That's a lot of value there. And I I really am impressed with the CPP calculator, both in what it does, but just the fact that even somebody did it. Right. And I personally prefer, I don't want to say homemade, but a a custom built solution versus whatever the the government would have produced for us. I think that you're going to get a more responsive tool and maybe whatever there's, I share some blood, sweat and tears from you for that, but I appreciate it. I think it's a, it's a real win for the community. So Thanks, Dave, and thanks for doing this today. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Okay, lots of really good stuff from David there. And I'll just emphasize that there are some places where you would need to do a little bit of additional digging to get to what your uh, CPP benefit can be. And that is for CPP disability benefits, CPP survivor benefits, even some of the CPP sharing or income splitting scenarios, it's going to be tougher than just using an online calculator like this. If you understand the connection between the inputs into CPP and how the benefits are calculated, you can probably help your client to eyeball it if you want to get right down to the penny or if you don't want to learn how the inputs work, then David's partner in this endeavor, Doug Runchy, does these 
consulting gigs for people who want to have a better handle on it. And that's something as an advisor, maybe you add Doug to your list of sort of centers of influence or referral people that you can send clients off to to get a better handle on what's going to happen with CPP. And a lot of people really appreciate that certainty in their CPP scenarios. Any bit of certainty we can add to our retirement planning, of course, takes some of the pressure off. It's already such an uncertain time. The number for today's episode is four. The number for today's episode is four. Okay, now in addition to our discussion around CPP, you heard David and I talk about pro bono financial planning and we recorded this in early September. I'm actually just getting ready in a couple of weeks here to partially host and partially attend a session with the United Way here in Edmonton, where we're going to train a few folks to act as financial coaches, really, is what we call it in this program. And it is mostly a financial coaching exercise. Uh, really, a lot of it ends up being about behavior and just getting people to feel good about taking control of their financial circumstances. We do occasionally get into some financial planning. It's not unusual to talk about a plan to pay off debt, for example, as part of these coaching engagements. And I would really draw that distinction between coaching, which is mostly about behavior change, and planning, which is mostly about identifying objectives and then meeting those objectives. Anyways, if you're interested in pro bono financial planning, there's lots going on out there. If you're a CFP or QAFP professional, you should have gotten, depending what province you're in, I know Ontario and likely by the time this episode is released, Alberta, in those two provinces and maybe others by now, we will have seen an email from FP Canada soliciting help with a program by which you're making connection to your either MLA or MPP to do some work as sort of a I guess I have a financial guide almost where you're going to meet a bunch of people in a big seminar and talk them through some basic issues and then a little Q&A at the end. Or if, if you're in Edmonton, I, we have this well-developed program. I'd love to hear from financial advisors and financial planners in Edmonton who want to do some pro bono work. In other parts of the country, if you hit me up, I can probably find you something. I know a few folks across the country are doing this pro bono work, some of them through FPAC, which is actually a place where I interact with David, the Financial Planners Association of Canada. So there is that uh, pro bono opportunity. I really encourage you to have a look at it. I'm always impressed with how much I've learned in my uh, pro bono engagement and certainly the learning opportunities, both for technical and just getting to hear people's stories who come from a background where your typical financial planning clients typically don't. It's just fascinating. One of the last things that David mentioned in there is the RESP for low-income folks. And this is something that I believe every financial advisor should be doing just as a matter of course. If you happen to know somebody who has relatively low income and has a child, of course, there's the Canada Child Benefit that we didn't talk about in the interview. But in addition to the Canada Child Benefit, the way the RESP works is you can get the Canada Learning Bond, which is that first $500. You only have to open an account to get it, and then $100 a year for 10 more years after that. 
as long as income stays low. And I would suggest for low income folks that $1,500, and probably it's not going to earn much in the way of returns, but that $1,500 is going to add to the chance that those kids attend school quite a bit. So really look at that as an opportunity. And then, of course, if you can put money into an RESP, low income folks qualify for grants at the higher level. If your income is below about $50,000 a year, then your first $500 of grants attracts a 40% match versus the 20% match we're used to. And then 30% of your income is between about $50,000 and about $97,000 of income. So the RESP has those added benefits for low-income folks. I know some financial institutions, I would look at credit unions here first and foremost, but some financial institutions, you don't even need to come up with the $25 or whatever it is to open an account. Some places will just open an account for that person who can't come up with the money to do it on their own. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. I haven't done a podcast review, I guess, or whatever we're calling these in a while here. And I want to give props to Jason Pereira for his excellent podcast. He actually has two podcasts that he hosts. One of them has, I would suggest, sort of a mixed bag of content that's useful for financial planners. A lot of it is very interesting for anybody who's working in the financial services sector and the one that is sort of the secondary one, at least for, I think, financial planners is FinTech Impact, which is excellent. It's really well done. Jason knows what he's doing and he has great guests on there. By all accounts, he gets a lot of listeners in places like Silicon Valley where that FinTech sector is so important. But the one that I specifically want to talk about here is the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. I like how he's titled it exactly what it is. It really is a pure financial planning podcast. I would suggest you go right back to episode one and start listening. I have no idea how Jason manages this, but he produces so much amazing content. His blog posts are top notch. He has two podcasts that he's running and he also runs a financial services firm and does a bunch of secondary sort of entrepreneurship type activities. So I have no idea how he finds the time, but very impressive anyways. 
Anyways, a few things that I really like on this podcast, he has a wide range of guests and they really are talking about financial planning topics. A lot of it does focus on the types of clients that I think the typical CFP professional would go find. So if you start right back to episode one, he has a really great discussion with a lawyer on there talking about incorporation and the use of trusts and so forth. So really well worth going right back to the start. I promise you'll learn something in every episode. The other thing I wanted to comment on here is something that I do see, and I talked about this a little bit as well with Sean and Corey's podcast a few episodes ago, but I think it's important if you're going to do this kind of thing, you really have to stick to it. And Jason has this good history. He knows how much work it is to build one of these things. We've certainly had our gaps with this podcast, but I think you have to have a regular schedule that your listeners can follow. And you'll see that, that Jason produces episodes every single week. If you're not going to do that, then another podcast that I've referenced previously has a good proxy for that. And this is actually the same thing you see with Freakonomics, a very high profile publicly known podcast. But I'll give props to Doug Hoyes with his Debt Free and 30 podcast, where he took some time off over the summer. He didn't produce new episodes, but he made a point of going and finding good episodes that he had done through the year and re-releasing those as sort of highlights or that kind of thing. You know, there's all kinds of ways you can do this to create a regular schedule for listeners. For me, the way that we do it is typically I record a bunch of interviews in my slower times and then build a backlog so that I have stuff that's being produced now or being generated regularly while I'm in class. I have a very busy class schedule come October and November owing to how the CFP exam cycles work. So I do have to sort of plan that out. And I find when I do a good job with planning that out, we get better content, it sticks better. And I think that's an overall general lesson for content marketing. People want to know what to expect. And same if you're going to do a blog post or anything like that. I think with blogs that you do want to have, if you're going to do a blog, do it monthly or do it every second month or do one a quarter, but have some sort of regularity around it and attach that then. It's not a bad idea to actually write down your first few ideas, even maybe to produce them. So if you're planning to do a blog, don't just write one blog post and get started. Although if nothing else, that is better than nothing. But really, if you're going to do a blog, sit down, write maybe three or four blog posts, and then put your first one live and plan for your next one to come out whatever next month or next week or next quarter, whatever works for you. Okay, I hope that's a a useful episode. Again, I really encourage you to go check out that CPP calculator. The link is in the show notes. It's a really good tool, uh, much easier to use than you might think. And I know maybe the prospect of downloading a whole web page seems intimidating, but honestly, it's no harder than saving a Word document. So yeah, crack over to that website and have a look at it. Other than that, uh, enjoy your continued studies. And thanks very much for joining us. In two weeks time, we're gonna have Christopher on the call and Christopher is gonna take us to a really great place for an advisor who wants to have their clients have better estate planning outcomes. 
I heard Christopher talk about this in class and I thought I got to get him on the podcast and delve into this. It's such a great resource that he's going to introduce. So please do join us again in two weeks. Thanks. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast.